you are here at a panel to discuss building tech teams. It's an art and a science. It's a really tricky business. What I'd love to do is have the panelists introduce themselves, tell you a little bit about who they are, what they do, so that you have a context and a perspective. My, myself, I'm from Vivo. I had product and technology, music video service you may have heard of. And I have 30 people that consist of product management, front-end development, back-end development, API, system engineering, design, sort of a full-stack kind of operation. Half are here, half are in, um, in New York. And uh, so that in and of itself brings up a lot of things in building teams. How do you do it in multiple locations? How do you organize? How do you structure? How do you execute and meet business objectives? Lots of stakeholders in music companies. So we'll explore a lot of these things. I would love to have this be as interactive as possible. So if you raise your hand and you want to say something or just throw something out, any time's a good time. A lot of times these panels make you wait to the end and then you run out of time. So I would love it to be interactive. There's somebody walking around with a microphone if you want to eat the mic like I'm doing. So let's start with the esteemed Judy with an introduction, please. And just so you guys know, she's the real deal. She's like a legend in Silicon Valley. So no shit. I mean, she was like the CTO at Cisco at one point, right? Big time. You know, when everybody, whenever anybody says I'm a legend, I, what immediately goes through my mind is that I'm old. So, <laughs> but I have been around the Valley for a long time, and actually, I'm sometimes most known for my tenure as CTO at Cisco, but that was actually only two years out of my career when they bought the third of my startups, a company called Precept, which was actually one of the first video streaming companies that Cisco acquired, and I became their CTO for two years before I went back to founding companies. So I have been in the Valley since started my first company in 1981. I have a technology background, worked with Vince Cerf, who's known as the father of the internet at Stanford, went on to found companies in the networking market, and was at Cisco started a couple of other companies, took a break, wrote a book on innovation called Closing the Innovation Gap, and had been very happily mentoring, helping people. Parallel, I've also sat on large company boards. I sit on the board of the Walt Disney Company, sat on the FedEx board for 22 years. So I understand big company dynamics, uh, so innovation and uh, building teams at scale, as well as startup environments. I was very happily helping people when my son co-founded a company with some friends called Event Live a year ago, and I jumped back at, into the startup world, and I'm the executive chairman and essentially working full-time at a new startup again. So and that's how I ended up at a music conference, because other than as a board member at Disney, which has been my biggest exposure to the consumer world, most of my background has been in technology companies and companies building essentially the plumbing of what we are all taking advantage of now. When you, think when you think you're done, they pull you back in, don't that, they? That's right. All right, Chris? Hey, I'm Chris. I am on the founding team of Bandpage, where I act as head of technology. So similar to Michael, I have about 30 people reporting to me in different forms, from uh, product managers and designers to a bunch of different kinds of engineers, data, infrastructure, QA, front end, back end. So that's been a really cool ride. I was part of Bandpage from the very beginning, and uh, we started three years ago and built the whole technology stack there. And then more and more, I've been managing the teams and, and so on. So this is the third time that I've built a technology team from scratch, and this is the largest and most successful one so far. So I've had a few failures and a few successes and uh, a lot of stories. So we'll see what we can figure out. 
All right, thank you, Andrew. Hey guys, uh, Andrew Major from Spotify. Working in New York City, I started there about a year and a half. And uh, when I started, there was 20 people in the, in the New York office, now there's like 150. There's like three engineers, now there's 60. So I've watched that explosively grow. Before that, I worked at a company called Ning down in Palo Alto. That was like two years ago, maybe four years ago. And I was the scrum master, so I worked with the engineering teams there. Okay. Just so we have a sense for who's in the room, can we do a show of hands for startups? If you're in a startup? Okay. So a little over half are in startups. Ask them if they're the technical side of the startup or the non-technical oh, That's a good question. Are you guys on the technical side or the non-technical side? So technical startup people. What do the rest of you do? Biz dev? The ideas. Ideas, okay. Vision. Are there any product managers here? You guys are all tech people as well, right? Are there any musicians here? I find when I hire people, I love it when I see that uh, a developer or an engineer, whatever, is, 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 an, is a musician as well, is a creative, right? I think just about almost everybody on our team plays something. And some of them are here today, but they might play you a song later. No pressure. <laughs> all right, so lots of startup folks. So listen, you got an idea like a lot of folks here. Where, where do you start, Judy? Where do you start with the idea? I mean, how do you get the, from idea to, to something in the market? Because you gotta, you gotta get a team to do that. And, and, and think about things like, do you, do you outsource it? Do you contract people in? Do you hire people? How do you, how do, you do it? That is like a really broad question, but I'll try to answer it. Uh, I'll, I'll try to do some bullet points and then let other people if they want to to jump in the thing to start with is depending on what your idea is you really have to think through what what is the complexity of the technology and what type of technology so there are some things that the idea translate to the marketplace as a website and what you need is a web designer there are some things that translate to the marketplace as an app for a mobile phone there are some things that translate to the user experience as a very complex web app and experience that supports laptops and mobile phones and tablets and everything. So depending on what that idea is, it's technical implementation. And sometimes you can start, there are some ideas that actually start small. So there is a lot of people talk about scale fast, fail fast, throw things out there, do it very quickly. And there are many ideas that lend themselves to that. And you always want to get to market as quickly as possible so you can get user feedback. But there are ideas that actually don't lend themselves to that. They have a level of complexity that you actually have to do a little upfront thinking about how everything fits together and some rapid prototyping before you throw something out. So I think there is no one size fits all to that. That's number one. Really understand what are you doing? Talk with some technology people if you're not a technologist to try to scale and scope out what's the best way to deliver your idea to the marketplace. The second thing is if you're not a technologist, go find yourself a great technologist as a partner because every team starts, smart people like to work with smart people. Smart engineers, like they love to work with creative people on the idea side, but in the end, the technology community and the engineering community is a community much like the music community. So if you don't start with really, really smart people and that first person you hire, that first partner is not 
the right core, you're never going to get the quality in the beginning. And when you start, it, it, it's very different the process you use in a large company. But when you're starting something small, you want to put together a very small team. And then the, the last thing I'll say and let others jump in here is one of the favorite sayings it used to be of VCs in, on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley is you invested in teams that were, they used to call them two pizza lunch teams because you wanted a team that was no bigger than could be fed with two pizzas for lunch. And that was, that's been a saying in the Valley for a long time. Well, when I was interviewing people for my book, one of the people I interviewed gave me a much better phrase, much more appropriate for this audience, is that the perfect size of a team should be no bigger than a jazz band. Because the best innovative team in those early stages is a team that can innovate off of each other and collaborate and have cognitive diversity and differences in terms of, of their skills and don't need somebody to conduct the orchestra. At some point, you get big enough and you need a conductor. But the optimum innovation comes when you're no bigger than a jazz band. And so you don't want to scale too fast. But each person in that jazz band has to be the best at what they do. So early on, do not settle in this area. You have to go try to find the smartest people that you can that match the expertise you need. One, one quick follow-on, though. So you said if you're not technical, get that technical person in, right? There was a day that I was technical and I still needed a more technical person. Mm -hmm. And I went uh, and I got a co-founder and then I got the lead architect or whatever. And this guy, we got to market and then all of a sudden he decided because he had so much leverage on us because he knew where all the bones were buried in the code, so much leverage that he wanted to be paid, compensated, 10 cents per subscriber that we had on us. It's like, wait a minute, dude. I can't, we're not making that money on the subscribers. We can't pay that to you. So there is, I mean, how do you avoid the bozo factor here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and that is a really hard thing to think about. It's like sort of how do you protect yourself against sort of a cannibalizing attitude at your company? Where like, one, one thing that a lot of uh, people say these days that I believe in is that if people are like motivated by money and like not the stuff you can do with money, but like the actual pursuit of money itself, then they are probably not the best people for your startup because when they get the better opportunity, they're very likely to bolt. But not only that, when they are working within your company, they'll be really likely to make decisions based off of that instead of other more holistic things about how you run a business. So instead, what you want to look for in people that you hire is to be motivated by impact and by changing problems in society. And I think that line of thinking can be really helpful when you're not sure about someone. So Chris, what were your first five hires, Bandpage, on the, on the tech team? My first five hires, my first, so I had built all of it to begin with, the server infrastructure and the back end and the front end. And you didn't ask for 10 cents a subscriber? Uh, no, I, I did ask for a minor portion of the company oh, itself. Yeah. That's fair, uh, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I first hired was a lead back end developer that was also really skilled in infrastructure. What I hired after that was a really skilled front-end developer that also doubled as a designer. Um, and that was a pattern that followed. Uh, in the beginning, we looked at 
a lot for people that didn't have just one specialty but two and that you could be confident could do like the majority of two full jobs in two different specialties and we were looking for people that had really high aptitude which is essentially the the drive to keep learning your whole life and like l basing your like try to get as much out of a situation as possible and just to like, keep learning and really high attitude was like when they go to work every day and they wake up, they really feel great about what they're doing and they have a general positive outlook on the projects that they take on in life. And if you have those together, you have someone who likes the projects that they take on and believe in them, that learns really quickly and that is motivated by making a high impact, those are the people that you want. Excellent. Andrew, what do you got? Yeah, all that sounds pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just remind when he was talking about aptitude, it reminded me, um, in Spotify, there's, the way it works is there's, like, uh, squads. So, like, there'll be a squad that just builds the radio on our iPhone app. Um, that squad would have product owners, designers, uh, engineers, and uh, then there's chapters. So, like, the chapter would be, like, all the engineers or all the product owners. Um, and then there's these guilds. So, like... I'm on the mobile guild, even though I'm not an iOS developer, but um, you, we're basically, engineers are encouraged to like learn every part of the company and like any new technology you want. So I think that's like really important to uh, do that. But you guys have like, how many people on your tech team? Hundreds, yeah? In New York, that's, uh, there's at least 60 engineers and then worldwide, I would say there's like 400 or 500. Right, so as, we, as you've heard so far, it's not one size fits all, right? I mean, it's, it is, I mean that sounds terrific. Yeah. But it's not uh, doable by everybody. Like, you can't do that, right, Chris? No, that, I can't. And that's something that's interesting is sort of like technology itself and systems based on technology and like also the people building them. It's like one of the best strategies as you scale is divide and conquer. So like you'll find yourself in a situation if you're successful that you went from one to two to three to ten people. And, and at that point, like it's not really that efficient anymore. And then, you, then you're 20 and 30 and 40 and like every once in a while you have to like stop and figure out the new way of doing it or even better you have to think you think about that all the time and make minor adjustments and when you get to something like spotify that is like three architectures overlaid on top of each other with like dotted line management in a matrix organization and that's awesome but you can't start with that because that's just too complicated how about i would love to know what you've each learned the hard way as it relates to building tech teams I'll give you one small anecdote. I told you about the, the dime per subscriber guy, but I'll give you one better. I hired, like Judy, I used to be in the plumbing aspect of, of the internet. And uh, I met Vint Cerf early on. I was, I was schlepping, I was selling him boxes and routers and all that kind of stuff. And by the time I started my second startup, it was a web and mobile-based company. And I was hiring a, the, the, the board, the venture capitalists were on the board, of course. They wanted an experienced VP of engineering. And they wanted somebody with gray hair. And, and th this is a few years back now, right? Now they don't want those guys, but they used to then. And so I hired a, a VP of engineering, actually, coincidentally, out of Cisco. And that was one of the companies he'd been. And, and so it didn't work because this was a startup. It was web-based. It was agile-oriented. We're, you know, we're doing a release every week kind of thing. And he was used to going on four- to six-month projects, right? He didn't work. Went through him. Got to another guy that was similar. And, th and there, was, there was this ongoing cyclical issue and it was rooted by my misalignment with my board more than anything else. These guys were all good guys, but there was misalignment which led to 
a different speck in the type of person in the DNA you look for. So there's lessons to learn you know, at every phase and every stage of this, and you live and learn. So why don't we go around the table and figure out what have you guys learned the hard way and, and, and you know, just give everybody a sense. We're not perfect, and I think that's the one thing about the Valley is every time you fail, there's at least a few people that give you a stripe of confidence. Who wants to start? Um, sure, I'll start. Um, one... Uh, I'll just say the obvious one first, which is like when you settle. Uh, the this is essentially always goes the same way. You realize that you need a specific type of person, say a designer, because you have way too much design work, and you look for three months, and you have a few recruiting agencies, and you're trying everything, and you're going to conferences trying to attract designers, and you just don't find one. And then after three months, you find this okay guy that is like totally enough for what you need at the moment, but you can already foresee that like scaling this person as like demand increases and quality and everything, it's gonna be a little hard. Um, but you decide to go for it and you hire this guy, he can start right away, it's awesome. Uh, maybe he didn't even have an old job to quit. And you get going, the work is all right, it's like totally good enough and after three, four months, you're starting to see that it's like his enthusiasm is tapering off a little bit. And in general, it's just like getting slower and you have to come to the unfortunate decision that you need to part ways. Um, so you do that and then you're back on square one and you need to find another designer. But it's already been like eight, nine months since you started. So if you just kept looking, maybe it would have taken three more, but you would have found a guy. But like this far into it, you have actually spent like a substantial amount of money on recruiting, uh, on this person's salary, time training them, and then, and then you have to start all over again from scratch. That is terrible, and it happens to the best of us, and you got to watch out for that. We've got a question out there, a comment. Go ahead, Dan. So, so with that. Actually, why don't you guys, if you're gonna if you're gonna participate, tell us so, who you are. That'd be oh, great. I, so I, I know who you are, but yeah. <laughs> tell everybody who you are. I'm, I'm Dan Peachy. I'm I'm uh, with Michael Avivo. Uh, we, the the, we're yeah, we're pretty hey, much. I'm a popular manager. <laughs> hey, I build great yeah. tech teams. <laughs> they have all come. <laughs> so, so with that, you find someone good enough. The work needs to get done. And in, in some in retrospect, it would have been better to maybe have waited two to three months more. Maybe you would have found that person. Maybe you wouldn't have. But the option of, of, of not let getting the work done, how, how would you overcome that? I think you need to like have uh, you know, ambition that fits the size of your company. It's like if you're two people, you should, it's going to be hard to change like an industry or like the way an entire country behaves. But you might be able to start on a smaller scale with like an app that changes some people's behavior or something like that. So it's like if you have way more work than you can possibly get done, then you need to like focus and figure out what's the most important to the business. If it's a little bit more, then I think you should just do it yourself. Let's, let me but, yeah. add another perspective in that, especially if you're in a larger organization, which um, uh, you guys might not be as large, but larger than a, a two-person, which is, I think, one of the lessons I've always learned, and, and it's I've learned several times and made the mistake several times, and it, it helps with the situation you have, which is always be recruiting. 
And I think that companies tend to get in this mode of, okay, I have the following recs to fill, and I'm looking for these people. And the fact of the matter is that at a management level and at an engineering level, you should always be out there talking to people, meeting people, the same way salespeople are always in business development mode. In some ways, if you want to have the best technical team, you really need to always be in that mode of meeting people so that when you need somebody, that you have, uh, that it doesn't take you as long to find them because you've been making those connections. That That's number one. Number two, I think something else that uh, Chris said earlier was this notion of, Never, they're not dependent on any one person. Having people who can do multiple skills, and if you find someone who can do that, number one, you won't end up in the situation where someone's holding you up for 10 cents on a, a, a or 10% of your revenue stream because you have because you can afford to lose people. So the same way that you need to be able to, it always takes longer to fill a, a slot than you think, and so the you need to be able to have other people that can cover and prioritize so that you don't have to settle. Um, and then always start ahead of the game. And sometimes, and this is much harder in big com companies because you have a bureaucracy, but the best, uh, the best management team always has a little bit of discretionary spending to know when they should hire somebody because there's a star that's become available and you want them on your team. And so you need to have that culture because sometimes an opportunity comes up and you may not have a rec, but you need to create it because that's somebody who's going to fill out the rest of the team. To, say, uh, to add to what she was saying <clears throat> about always be recruiting, um, my job at Spotify has nothing to do with recruiting, but like naturally I email the recruiters 10 times a day because I'm out there like meeting people. Um, I'm always like keeping track of like what friends need this job and like what we're doing. So like everyone at your company is going to be a recruiter. Um, so yeah. Yeah, All right. I'll, I'll add one thing to that that was taught to me early on. Uh, that is, if you are a founder or like early on in a company, for as long as you can foresee, just count on at least 30% of your time always going to recruiting. Because you need to scale your company up. You need to con convince other people that it's the right thing to do and work with you. and it takes at least that much. So if you're spending less than that, start right now to do more. What are you willing to spend on a recruiter? It's a percentage of the individual's total comp, yeah? <laughs> if they're not retained, right? So it's, it's, it's a general, you know, it's a developer search or whatever. What do you, what do you spend? What's, what's market? What, what are you guys seeing? Uh, right now, as far as we've seen, market is 20% of the annual salary of the candidate, excluding sign-on bonuses. Right. That can't be a part uh, of it. I was going to say, with a raw startup, um, if you're lucky, you don't need to pay recruiters. You, yeah. you have your network, and you're hiring a couple of people, and those people know people. And, right. Um, now, that can't always, that doesn't always work, and so that, that's not saying you shouldn't be paying recruiters, but especially because, and, and you pointed to this also, those initial people, it's like... Uh, getting married. I mean, you, you are forming relationships and partnerships with that initial team that you just really, really need to vet. And, and Which means you, you have to date f as well, right? With these people. No, so you've got you to you um, crack maybe, a couple of beers, need, break you, some bread. You need, to, you need to spend enough time together. And if you can find people through people you know, then you're more likely to find people that are 
compatible and that you can trust. What, what, what if you have a good friend that wants to start a company with you? So I'm Ooh. not the right person to ask. My my seven companies I started with my ex-husband and my current company, my son <laughs> is the co-founder of. So Are I, you going to drink you know, that beer? There, there will be lots of people who have horror stories. I happen to think that if you, uh, if you have a good friend, the only thing you need to realize is uh, it could break the friendship. And it's you 50, have to 50. put the company uh, ahead of... The friendship so it better be the type of friendship that you can yell at each other that you can tell each other that you're wrong that you're not gonna bend the rules for the friendship so it it has to work it more often doesn't work than does work but it can be a phenomenal partnership because you're spending a lot of time and you need to be compatible with the people you work with I started Uma with a good friend and instead of going to college this kid went to Cisco Right, he was on this exclusive global task force that went and built networks for Singtel and all kinds of places. And we were doing a voice over IP consumer device to let people talk for, for free on the phone. We were the best of friends and now we, I haven't talked to him in years, right? It's a 50-50 and I told him that going in. I said, dude, 50-50 chance, we're not gonna be friends at the end of this. So you gotta know that. You, have, you had a question, Jason. It was just a follow up, uh, when you, um, I'm loud, I'm fine. I think we're going on Ustream, so they're listening to you on the interwebs. Hi, interwebs. Um, it, it was just a follow-up question. Uh, do you think it's even worth it to, to use recruiters, or do you find it a, a big waste of money? Um, or is it a crapshoot? Depends on the stage, I think, right, guys? Yeah, it really does depend on where you're at. As you said earlier, I think in the beginning, it's like great people attract great people. And you should be able to rely on that in the beginning. There's no way that you can afford recruiters anyways. Like that market is pretty like saturated and tough. But as you do scale up and you have more money in the bank and there is like an actual incentive to scale faster than you do naturally by just like attracting talent because you are yourself recruiting on a day-to-day -day basis, then it's simply more resumes in the pipeline. It's like it's access to more people and you pay for that privilege. But I think you have to be smart in how you do it. There are recruiters yes. and there are recruiters. There are people who do sourcing that just help you get people. And then there are people who claim they actually add value beyond the sourcing and um, a few do. Um, when you have in-house recruiters, that's a different thing. They're part of your team and they're doing that. So I, I think the, as you scale, it becomes something that, uh, especially if you, when you're talking about management ranks, often becomes something that is an important part of the ecosystem. But it doesn't take the place of needing to just get out there and network and connect with people. And today, with social media the way it is, things like LinkedIn, other tools that you can use, I think that recruiters actually played a more important role 20 years ago, or 10 years ago even, than they, yeah. than they do today. Although today they do have services they can spend with LinkedIn th right. that you and many, I don't. Do we have recruiters in the audience? Did I? Okay. <laughs> so here's, so he, here's something interesting. At every conference I go to, like especially if I've spoken, like, like today, there's usually like a line of people and I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. I can talk to some people for a few minutes, but it's usually a bunch of vendors that want to sell me something. Namely, it's outsourced s development services. Oh boy. So none of you guys don't get in line today because I'm not doing it. <laughs> not right now. So, so, but every company goes through that dilemma of 
boy, we need to augment our resources. We can get one more platform supported if we had just, right? And, and we've all been there. Um, how do you know when to outsource? Uh, well, I personally think you should be extremely careful with outsourcing. Uh, I don't know if the rest of you here agree, but it's for if you're going to outsource like a little project on the side that is not mission critical, like a WordPress plugin or something. Now that makes sense. You just spec it well, and like if they don't deliver what you spec, well then you can hold them to that. But if it is mission critical, then like I've not really seen it work that well, but I will give an example that I thought people had it really well understood did. And they were like, if you are gonna go to like India or China or some of the like sort of larger places of like outsourcing, you have to commit to it fully and you go there yourself and you interview every single person that's gonna be on your outsource team. And you don't just give them like the really easy, shitty problems that you want to get rid of. You give them like a full on like product feature branch so that they will actually put their best people on it and not their worst. And then you stay behind there for like a few weeks, getting the team up to speed working with your team. And once that works well, then you can go back home and only check in with them like monthly or something. But up until that point, like, you're just running the risk of it not delivering something mission critical the way you wanted it or on time or at higher cost or whatever. And uh, it's really uh, I, I, I'm maybe agreeing, but maybe disagreeing in um, two things. There's outsourcing, which means just you're not doing it yourself. And there are a lot of firms in the US or in San Francisco that do outsource development. And then there's offshoring, which is sending it to whether it's Eastern <coughs> Europe or, sure. or India. And I think the issues are, there are some that are common and some that are different. And I think the, the place where I absolutely agree with you is that if you can do, you, can, you need to control your destiny, the technical part of what you're doing is in the end gonna be really important. And if you outsource the whole thing, um, if you don't have the technical expertise inside, to deal with the outside firm. So the reason it works when you take a piece is you have technical people internally that can spec it, can detect that piece, and can interface with the other firm. But if you don't have technical people inside and you think you can just have a good idea and then outsource the whole thing, you don't have the capability in-house to even evaluate where you are and what you're doing. So that the, the completely outsourcing is, is a dangerous route um, unless you have no other choice. Leveraging your own resources with consulting help from time to time is one way to avoid the notion of hiring somebody who ends up this settling notion. It's okay to settle a little bit sometime with a consultant where you have a three or four or five months or six month task that you need some extra resources and you manage it a little bit more carefully but they don't become part of your external team. So that's another Type, or you have a superstar, and there are in the, in the technical world a lot of people these days who have gotten to a level of expertise where they're not gonna work for any one company. What they wanna do is just consult for different companies. And if you have a chance to tap into that superstar through consulting, then that type of outsourcing, again, if you have the technical expertise to manage it, is really good. When it comes to offshoring, be very, very, very careful. Unless you are very big, 
and you have the ability to have people on location in whatever that place is. It's one thing to have labs in remote locations, but it, it, a lot of small companies got fooled for a number of years because uh, the venture community in Silicon Valley decided, oh great, it's cheaper, we'll take five people and do this in India. The overhead of that interface for a small company, it is just absolutely not worth it. And in the end, uh, you find that you you, you try to well, take it back home again. And they bait so. you on something like, oh, it's like going to net out to $19 an hour per head. And what happens is it's like really 17 and then like there's like one person at 17 everybody else is like $1 or $2 a head, right? Something like, I'm, I'm and exaggerating. If, if you yes. take that jazz band analogy, how do you improvise off each other when you're a continent away? So, so much in the startup phase is about collaboration. And it's about collaboration, not just amongst the technical team, but collaboration amongst whoever is on the creative side. And one of the best examples of this, even though it's a large, uh, a large organization now, is Pixar. Pixar is driven, is known for its movies, but Pixar's expertise is also because it has leading edge technology in terms of animation. And the way the uh, the creative and the technologists drive each other in terms of that coll collaboration is just phenomenal. And it's because they are tightly coupled across the two groups. And it's very hard to do that when you outsource the... Uh, engineering is not about implementation, it's about creation. And yeah. I, I want to echo just even more on that. It's like not only just having your own team and being happy with that as like a starting point, but working under the same roof, preferably in the same room, is what will lead to the most collaboration, which is what you need, because you need to be in sync. Like, and as an engineer, it can be hard, but uh, you still need to be in sync with the business people if you're like the only engineer in the company, of like, what are the market requirements? What are you learning when you're pitching this? Because it Im impacts how you build the product, and of course, vice versa. It's like, if when you're building something, you run into certain difficulties, it's very, very important that the business people know that as soon as possible, so that you can figure out what else to do. All right, but there's a question out there. Do you think the uh, venture community now understands that um, the offshoring is is less effective than originally thought, and that the cost offset is not worth it? Um, Depends on who you're asking in the venture community, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, I don't think there is a ones. I think some do. I think some are still uh, probably believe in that model. So um, I, I think there's not a, a one. I was going to give a somewhat sarcastic answer, and I censored myself. So I think uh, I think there, there are all sorts of VCs, and um, some of them understand this dynamic. Some of them don't have a clue. In music tech... There's lots of stakeholders, right? Just think about that for a minute. I, and I'm gonna ask you guys about this. I mean, in, in my case, I have, uh, so of course, end user consumers. I have um, record labels themselves. Um, I've got a content and programming team that programs and curates experiences. Um, I've got a sales team that sells ads to brands. Um, you know, um, it, it, it goes on and on, and, and, and how do you, this is a very delicate thing that is very specific to music and tech because you have licensing and rights and all kinds of other issues that go along with it. How do you build teams to deal with all of that? Because if, if you're looking at it 
I, I remember when I first got to Vivo, I had this purest, you know, product guy mentality, and I'm gonna, I'm the, I'm the conscious of, of the user, kind of like, kind of like you are probably at Spotify. You're the conscious of, of the user, always gunning for that. But then I realized halfway in a complete rebuild of the company's platform that, wait a minute, that's only like a fourth of the stakeholder constituency. So, so I think over time we sort of course corrected and well understood and, and now we serve serve all of the constituents but it's very difficult very tricky how do you guys prioritize that in in your you're all doing something in music and tech and you have many constituents i'd, I'd say although you haven't launched yet but, but we have a product. you have a product any one of those stakeholders in. And so when we are making product decisions, we make sure that it's not a question of having a person in the sky that engineers have to go ask permission of. It's a question of informing everybody in the company of the issues so that people can uh, understand them and understand they may not be experts, but they know when they're starting to come up with an idea that it may run up against a sponsorship issue or a licensing issue. And that way they can continue to be creative, but they know to go ask or bubble it up or have a conversation. We also have lots of discussions about features. So when we're discussing features, uh, our engineers are there, but so are the people doing business development and business affairs. So we, in a small company, you want everybody involved in the decision-making, but what I think you don't want is these silos, because if you have silos of expertise, then the engineers are not as free to be as innovative and creative as they want to be. So I think you really want information to flow, setting the guidelines, and then when you run into a sticky issue, you get together and talk about it. Did, did that make sense? Yeah, I, I would echo that entirely. And especially the last part of like the engineers being creative, it's like at the very core of it, there there's a bunch of different engineers outside of technology too. For example, they build bridges and the buildings and stuff. And engineers are societies like problem solvers. They, they get all these like difficult issues and then they sit together and they, they try to figure out a way to solve it. And they are the best at doing that when they have as much information as possible. So the closer your engineers and your technology people are to the rest of the business and really understand what's going on, uh, they will have a much easier time trying to solve the problem at hand. Because otherwise, if they have half of the information, they will solve that half of the problem. Um, and the other thing that I would add to that is like sort of just as um, being a music tech company and, and being in a space now for, for over three years, the most helpful shift I saw at Bandpage in terms of like being a little bit more in sync in sort of how all of this like fits together was to have an in-house lawyer that can explain it because yeah. it's really difficult. That was one of the things I was going to add is uh, every employee at Spotify, no matter if you're like an engineer or not, has to go to Sweden for this thing called intro days. It's two days long and you sit with the lawyer for an hour. You sit with someone from label relations and you like... It's like school, like you learn all the ins and outs of the music and tech business. And then in New York, our engineering team does a lunch and learn every Friday. So uh, for an hour you sit there and someone who's an expert at something teaches you, you know, here's how our back end works or something. So not all hires as you're building a team are created equal. Um, you don't have infinite dollars to spend. Do you spend your dollars on 
only the best and the brightest and most senior? Uh, do you balance it out uh, between senior and junior? Do you like to nurture people and promote people that are coming up that are hungry? Um, how, do you, how do you guys go about that? Me to start. Sure. Want, I, I think it's it depends on the size of the company. I think when you're starting off, you try to hire. It, I'm talking about it, the engineering organization. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's different in different parts of the organization. But in the t on the engineering or technology side, that when you're small, you try to uh, hire the best and the smartest as as seniors you can get before they get to that point where they're managing, that mm -hmm. they're still individual contributors and each one can really do multiple things and carry a load. I think as you grow, you want to then balance it off with uh, people who are just young and really smart that y are mentored by the people who, because they're gonna become those smartest people. And if you just decide you're not never gonna hire anybody who is new and young, um, we, we as an industry can't grow. And so, and I also think you can leverage, there are different types of tasks and you can leverage the expertise of the more senior people. But I think when you're starting, uh, be careful about not hiring, in the, especially on the technical side, not hiring people who haven't been through a product cycle because it is, it's very different learning how to program and hack in your garage and knowing actually what a real product cycle looks like. And I think everybody here who's been on, uh, had the pressure of, of having to perform that knows it, it's just a different motion. You might not. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, early on, like, you, you have to think about what you're hiring for, right? And, and like, <coughs> ideas, they're pretty cheap. Like. Uh, I'm sure we all have pretty great ideas all the time, uh, but it's execution that really counts. And having a team that is able to execute on your ideas and, re and bring them to life uh, is what's the most important. And it is significantly easier to do that if you have done that before. Uh, so, so I strongly believe in senior people um, as you're starting the company. Uh, just as you said, it's like not senior enough to like all they do is management like like hungry senior engineers that like code all day and then they go home and code on an open source project all night because they love to do that and these are the people preferably that you can grow into managers later on so that as you scale these people automatically become your top performers they get promoted to be tech leads and managers and they get to hire and mentor uh, the next wave of people like themselves uh, at the more mid-stage. Like, but but currently, you guys, you got, you told me you focus on senior, senior, senior folks. Yes. At Band Page in engineering, we have one junior employee and one mid-level employee, and about twenty-five or so senior people, and. That's been, uh, it goes both ways, right? It's, like, it's just a different challenge of, okay, of so any building a company like that. So any developers here who are trying to get going, do not go to him for a job right now. <laughs> you better know your shit before you go to this guy. Yeah, question in the back. Yeah, uh, my name's Garrett. Uh, so as engineers, uh, what kind of feedback and insight and guidance do you look for from your product team? Uh, what's the optimal way for working with product managers and, and 
so in some in some cases, it depends on how the organization, and that's that's a good topic in and of itself. Is how do you organize? Because the way I've organized is product is a part of technology. It's product and technology is the group I have. So um, I, I know in the case of Chris, you have separate yeah. groups, right? So why don't you get, take a take take a stab at that one? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so the way we've organized it is sort of like small independent teams uh, that work together so like around very cohesive goals so we have like one team that's product and design that's like five people and then we have like front-end engineering back-end engineering infrastructure engineering data and QA and as far as working with product and design it's really important that they work as close together as possible um, especially with the front-end team the people that are like really gonna like make it work the way that they do and like the way we do it is we sort of chain it so like the front end team they work really closely with product and design as well as back end and then back end they work really closely together with front end and infrastructure and infrastructure works really closely together with back end and data my question is how do you guys organize teams to minimize team conflict and speed up product development like how do you guys match everybody so that they work cohesively together yeah, so I think it's, that's essentially the same question. It's like you, you, you do need to focus on all of these people working together within their specialties or if they're generalists. And like it's the communication handoff that's important more than anything. It's sort of like, like just knowing what you're building. Like this is what we're building. Okay, cool. This is how we're going to like build our portion of that and we'll build this portion of that. And like exactly how you organize it, it depends on the size. Yeah. yeah, and I was going to say, you know, when you're starting, we're at Event Live, we are a Ross, you know, a, we've been around for a year, but what we're building is fairly complex. It's a destination site for uh, live performance music, and it is a web app that supports laptops, mobile phones, uh, iPads, whatever. So you have the infrastructure, you have the back end, you have the front end, you have, all, but I would say that it is as complex as what a big company does. We don't have the, not only don't we have the luxury, but in it isn't right to start siloing off teams right. because everything is interrelated. And when you make it, especially in the, in the initial cycle where you're trying to figure out the best user experience under the constraints of what iOS allows you to do and what can, uh, what really, can uh, done with HTML5 versus not what the, it, it all trickles down. And so if you too early on start to think about trying to break things into little pieces that, and th there, is, there is this whole ideology now of uh, agile programming, which says you break things into these little pieces that can be done and it, it has a lot of great things about it, but when you take it to its extreme of ideology and try to apply it to every situation, there are times when breaking things into those pieces actually does the whole a disservice. There are times when you get bigger and, and it's the right time to do it. So I think you have to be careful to really understand the situation you're in and the size you're in and scale the approach, both the management approach, because things we can get away with because the whole company is 15, 16 people. You can't do when you're across continents and you have to find mechanisms and processes 
for doing. So it, there, there's, again, one thing that's absolutely true in building technical teams and managing technical teams is there is no one size fits all. And one of the things I've seen in large companies is it's funny to see them constantly reorganizing. Totally. Cisco was mm-hmm. always reorganizing. It's uh, technical teams. It was functional matrix, functional metrics. We laughed every two years they would they would reorganize because there is no perfect answer for how to do it. And it seems like yeah. building teams is much like building products. You're always going to be reevaluating it and testing it. And I just did a, a mild reorganization recently and I, I made actually product managers sort of business owners across the different, so there's a web business owner now, there's a, there's a mobile and TV business owner and the devs in those cases all report up into them ultimately because they are on the hook for that business. And that that translates into the business goals. The business goals are what they are most in tune with and so they're they're sort of pushing them down through the releases and execution. So it's it's interesting. Um, there's a question from one of I, I was gonna say just before that they're like uh, if you can, everyone in the same room. Like regardless of teams. But, but like but at Bandpage we had like up to twenty people reporting directly to me but as one team before we decided to split it up. So like, you just need to always iterate on this and think about it all the time. That's your job. Meanwhile, Spotify is in like, how many different locations? Like five now, in terms of tech teams? Uh, You got New York, you got Sweden, you got San Francisco. There's a couple in Sweden, there's some in London, there's a team here. So yeah, the tech teams, I would say there's like six different locations. I think you always have to take that into account. Yeah, the the, the whole team needs that. All of them Chemistry is the utmost important, right? And when when you figure out, one really important part about building a team is to know when to fire people too, right? Uh-huh. And, and so when you don't have that chemistry, you gotta cut it off. Well, so no one to fire and no one to rearrange because the other thing is that what I found is often you have somebody and it looks like they're a non-performer and maybe you just haven't taken the time to figure out what their strength, maybe they're in the wrong place. And so really taking the time to think about, wait a minute, is there something I can do before you just fire somebody? Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's just a question of moving them around and they can end up just absolutely shining with just a little bit of nurturing and in a different place. And so I think the personality and paying attention to that, as a friend of mine says, we all have our weirdnesses. It's a question of finding people whose weirdnesses are compatible with yours. So managing, technical folks that for sure uh, is a good thing to remember yeah and one thing uh, we're doing right now in our company is uh, internal hack week and tonight actually is the game night so basically you can work on any team you want this week and if let's say you always want to work with the mobile team and then tonight people are just like having beers and deciding you know you could you're basically just meeting everyone else and seeing if you want to do something else in the company question in the audience yeah so um, given that you have different um, technological teams in different areas of the world what different behavioral um, differences have you seen in, let's say, tech teams in Silicon Valley, London, New York, Sweden, mm-hmm. in the way uh, engineers uh, really operate and behave, and how do you handle that? They start drinking beer earlier in Sweden. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you attest to that, right? <laughs> no, um, yeah, like, the New York, like I said before, in New York we have, like, squads. So, like, there's four squads. They're all working on different stuff. Um, they come in in the morning. They come in at like 10:30. They leave at like 6:30. Uh, in Sweden, they probably come in late as well, right? Or no, they're they're kind of early in Sweden actually. He's, yeah. You're Swedish, right? I, I am Swedish. I grew up in Sweden, so <coughs> I've run companies there too. Um, in Sweden, it's more consensus-driven, um, and a lot of like sweeping management decisions are 
anchored with the teams earlier so that when the when the decision is announced everyone has already bought into it so there's a lot of that stuff going on which uh, can be really helpful um, here and uh, different places are more like you say what's going to get done and that's what's going to get done um, if you go to like places like Germany which are pretty interesting too then even more like it's hierarchical to the point where like it's really not cool that you talk to your boss's boss like that you might get fired for that I, I think the answer to this is not dissimilar from when you were talking about the music industry issues a a any company that is multinational whether it's engineering organizations or uh, other parts and I saw this at Cisco that I was at Cisco from 98 to 2000 when they grew from 18,000 to 36,000 people and um, did more acquisitions, I think, than I can than I can count, and it's very clear that you have very very different business cultures in uh, Israel than you do in California, than you do in Japan or China or India, and so I think the only way to effectively deal with that as an organization is to get all employees sensitive to the fact that there are cultural differences. You can't completely inculcate everybody in the other cultures but you can get people to understand that if you're on the phone and someone's yelling at you well yeah maybe you don't yell here but in another culture that is part of the culture yelling at somebody or if somebody nods their head it may not mean they agree maybe they just heard you so there are clearly different protocols and different hierarchies and I think that anytime you're in a multi national organization, your employees, ha that has to be part of the understanding of the sensitivity and to then ask. And then you need what I call connectors. You need people in the organization that are good at connecting the different groups and the different cultures. And we should never underestimate people who are effective at doing that. Because often you think they're, those are the first people to go because they're not actually contributing code or they're not actually contributing revenue. But connectors in a large organization are often uh, the people that are actually making the organization work because they are bridging those gaps between engineering and marketing or engineering and sales or Israel and California or India and here. So. And they're often unsung heroes, yeah. so look for them and pay attention to them. So we got a couple questions in the back. Uh, yeah, hi. I, uh, I'm curious to know a, a couple of questions, and they're directly related. Uh, how, in this really demanding marketplace, does a startup attract um, a good CTO? And uh, in, in that vein, Chris, I know you work with Jay very closely and have for quite some time. How did you uh, build that relationship? How did the two of you guys come together to create that dynamic relationship that really evolves into a, a strong company and a great startup? And where are you from? I'm with Pyramind, Pyramind Studios and Training, and we have a startup called Pyramind Online that is in the uh, online education space now, delivering training uh, through video and online learning. Terrific. Uh, yeah, I think uh, sort of uh, every everyone's different, right? Uh, and uh, you, you'll find with engineers there are all kinds as well. Uh, me in particular, I've always wanted to work with like really great business people. So I, I had very very high standards for the the kind of person that I would want to start a company with. I think. And you would just come off of Scout, right? Was that your last thing that you were uh, working on before? I, I was actively working at Scout. Oh, you were yeah. still working there. I was still working at Scout. Yeah, so I, so I was the uh, the first employee and the lead engineer at Scout, and I did that for two years, and and uh, it went pretty well. And then 
uh, we pivoted that company into dating because uh, it, it made sense at the time and it was just not as close to my heart. So I started looking for something more in the arts, like music. And I wanted to join a company with like 10 employees or something and just be like the lead engineer. That's like a, a bit of a more comfortable route, <coughs> I thought. Um, there just wasn't any companies that did what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I started looking around for like founders and like, as I said, it's just really, really important uh, to me to, to work with someone who uh, I feel is like a, like a great counterpart that can do all that other stuff of the business and loves doing that. Uh, and I met Jay and we, we just met randomly. We were at the same house party and uh, then it was a pretty boring party, so we ended up talking together for six hours about how we could hopefully someday change the music industry. We had a lot of really great ideas. He was looking for a tech person. I was looking for a business person. We signed contracts the next day and started working on Bandpage. So if you're looking for that next great hire, just go to a party. Yeah. Uh, I, I Always network. All the time. You have to... F you have to meet people and see which ones yeah. speak to you. So let me add just two things onto that. You said, how do you find a CTO? The first thing you need to decide is what you think a CTO is. So um, the, the title CTO can be used as an externally facing person. It can be the chief architect. It can be the first technologist in, which means really a VP of technology and product. So be careful of that title because CTOs out there uh, are run the gamut of what an actual CTO does. There right, are CTOs. There's optics to it, right? Yeah, there are optics to it. So um, think about what it is you actually want. But the other thing that um, I was just going to play off of that uh, Chris's story reinforces is just this whole notion of uh, serendipity and networking and getting out there and meeting smart people because that's, in the end, the way that usually the initial teams come together. Um, it, it's like you find it when you're, you're not looking for it. And um, so that the amount of just connecting to people, if, if you are, think you're going to start a company or are at a startup, it is a really important thing. Because uh, on the engineering side, we're in a state again right now where uh, it, it, it's really, really hard to find good people. There's enough startups. Uh, and again, depending on where you're located. If you're located here, if you're located in New York, it's really, really hard. So another answer is go, go find, go locate somewhere else and find some smart people to start with somewhere else. But you lose the infrastructure, you lose the ability to grow your team. So there's a lot of disadvantages, but there are people that have decided to locate elsewhere because it's just too hard to compete in this area. I think you need to be prepared to have the right incentive of whether it's financial and not either or, but financial uh, money and equity. And if this is a key, technologist is a key part of your team, and it sh that person should be rewarded that way. But I'll go back to what Chris said. Um, I've often said about startups, it's about the money, but it shouldn't. It can't be about the money. Meaning, there's no question that start anybody who's in a startup is striving for success and success is usually represented in terms of making money. But if you're in it for the money and if 
to get somebody, you have to do crazy, crazy things in terms of packages, then maybe they don't have a passion for what you're doing. So it's about the money, but it shouldn't be about usually, the money. Usually if somebody's a pain in the ass while you're hiring them, they're going to be a pain in the ass after you hire them too. And then there are some that afterwards hold you up. Yeah, yeah. So. absolutely. So we're going to wrap up with closing remarks, and we'll make this brief. And what I would like to ask everybody is to impart one sort of one phrase, one sentence um, of lasting, you know, wisdom you can throw out there. Um, the, the one I'll say in terms of building teams is, is I would say if you're building a tech team, at the heart of it, you should be obsessed with your customer's happiness, right? Because if you could do that, you're building the right attributes and value around that, and that translates to business value, that translates to the kinds of people you're going to bring in and the kinds of things they're going to do. Judy? It's always hard when you need to be shorter than longer. I'd go back to what I said before, which is in the engineering culture, smart people attract smart people. So the best technologists want to be around the best technologists. And so getting that, and that's one of the most important thing to them, which is that feeling of the jazz band and working with other unbelievable musicians to uh, create something wonderful and create something magic. And so um, it's hard, but you need to start with that core or what will grow out of it will be, you only get worse as you go around typically. So that those first couple of hires are just so, so, so critical. Yeah, I'm gonna just first of all echo that uh, we all want to work with great people that we can learn from, especially if you're already pretty good, you want to work with people that are even better. And that's like getting one of those even better people is what will attract the awesome people to your company later on, right? You need to be really patient with hiring. You need to focus on people that want to make an impact somehow to, you know, what your business is about, like the music industry, for example. Um, and you need to hire for attitude and aptitude. But one thing that I thought was really important in the beginning in particular, like your first five, is only hire people that intimidate you. And why is that? Because they know stuff you don't. Like, of course you need to be able to work together really well, and like, you, you do need to be able to spend like 10, 12 hours per day in a room with them so they can't suck. But like, at the same time, they need to bring something really special to the table, and that can be a way to feel that. He kind of stole mine, but um, I'll, I'll leave you guys with a quote from a former CTO that I worked with, Joe Stump, who started, uh, he basically built Dig, the, the architecture for Dig, and my company, Simple Geo. And his, his did, quote, he do, did he do Sprintly too? Yeah, he does Sprintly. Sprintly. Yeah, who uses Sprintly? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, his quote was that he would only hire people that are smarter than him, and he's really smart. Yeah, so, he's crazy uh, smart. He's so. running out of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it basically echoes all what these guys said. Also, when you're building a company, uh, be careful that like what you're building isn't already out there uh, and only like do it better than your competitors, which is a tough one. Uh, we did a hackathon this weekend, and I was like, I'm only doing this if no one else is doing it. And I think we found that. Excellent. Hey, thank you, everybody. No offshore people don't line up, right? Remember that? All right, thanks very, thanks very much, everybody on the panel.